Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. I'll be reading chapter 12 of John, the first 11 verses. Please give your attention to God's word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. When I'm sharing the gospel with somebody and I get to the part where I talk about how you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved, I have to stop at that point usually and define what I mean by the word believe. What is the faith that saves? So to illustrate that, sometimes I'll say something like this. I'll say, do you believe in George Washington? In other words, do you believe that he was the first president of the United States, father of our country, great hero of the Revolutionary War? Do you believe in George Washington? And everybody I talk to will say, yes, I believe in George Washington in that sense. Well, then if I follow up that question, I say, well, what difference does your belief in George Washington make in the way you live your life every day? Typically, the answer is absolutely none. And so that begins to get at the difference between believing in Jesus Christ in the sense of believing in the historical facts about who he was and what he came to do, and believing him in a more profound sense, a deeper sense. But what if I were to ask, instead of using George Washington, what if I were to use a different historical figure, somebody maybe like Karl Marx, or Muhammad, or Charles Darwin, or Buddha? What if I were to choose a historical figure like that and say, okay, do you believe in Karl Marx? Do you believe in the historical facts about who he was and what he did? And they say yes. And I say, well, what difference does believing in Karl Marx make in your life? Many people 
would say it makes a big difference if they believe in Karl Marx or in Muhammad or Buddha they would say hey that's where I get my worldview from that's where I get my philosophy from that's where I get my morals from where I get my my values in life makes a big difference that I believe in Karl Marx or Muhammad well is that the kind of belief is that the kind of faith that saves is that the kind of faith that the Bible's talking about does that to, to believe in Jesus does that just mean that we adopt his worldview that we accept his morals as our morals and his values as our values and look at the world the way he looks at it and our political views line up with his political views is that what it means to believe in Jesus is that what it means to be a Christian? Is it similar to being a Marxist? Obviously, there's something missing there, isn't there? It's not just believing in the historical facts about Jesus, and it's not just embracing those beliefs to the point where it changes the way you live your life. Obviously, there's something more, and that's what I'd like to talk about this morning. In John chapter 12... As we return to the Gospel of John, we pick up the story in chapter 12 at the very beginning of the last week of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's kind of interesting because we're only halfway through the book of John. We're only halfway through the Gospel, which shows you how much detail and how much importance John lays upon the last week of Christ's life. We're going to spend the whole second half of the book on just one week of his life and ministry. And when you think about that last week of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, again, thinking of the historical facts of what took place during that week, huge events, life-changing events, world-changing events took place during that week. Events that would transform the entire cosmos eventually took place during that week. In light of that, it's interesting that John begins the account of Jesus' last week by focusing in on this odd little incident involving a relatively unremarkable, ordinary disciple named Mary. This is the Mary that we were talking about back in chapter 11. Jesus was very close to a family that lived in Bethany. Bethany was a little town on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And John tells us that Jesus loved this family. He was particularly close to this family. It was made up at least of a brother and two sisters, Lazarus, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And as we got to know them in chapter 11, we saw that Mary and Martha had sent out word to Jesus, a desperate plea to Jesus to come because their beloved brother Lazarus was deathly ill But Jesus delayed, and before he arrived, Lazarus died, which set the table for one of the most fantastic miracles that Jesus performed, which was to, by the power of his word alone, to raise Lazarus from the dead. And as we came to the end of chapter 11, what we saw is that this amazing miracle upped the stakes for the Jewish leadership that had already committed themselves to condemning Jesus as a false teacher, a false messiah, and a threat to the nation, and so that's what brought them to the point of saying, okay, now, now he needs to die. And that's where we left off at the end of chapter 11, with Jesus basically retreating to the wilderness while they plotted his death. Well, here as we come back 
to the story in chapter 12, we see that Jesus is returning from the wilderness. And as we put the accounts together, it appears this is a few weeks later. He spent a few weeks in the wilderness. He comes back to Jerusalem because all of the faithful Jews are flocking now to Jerusalem because the Passover is about to be celebrated. And as people are starting to come into the area around Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples return and they come to Bethany again. And John takes the time to tell us about a little dinner party that they had when Jesus arrived. He says they had a dinner, and from the other gospel accounts, the parallel accounts in Mark and Matthew, we know that it was, took place in the house of a man named Simon the leper. We can only assume that this was a leper that Jesus would have healed. So he honors Jesus, brings him into his home, and they have a dinner party. And John mentions that Lazarus is there. And so in some senses, this is probably a resurrection party because it's still very fresh in the minds of the people of Bethany, what had happened there only a few weeks earlier. And so they're honoring Jesus and celebrating the, re the resurrection of Lazarus. It says in the account that they were reclining at the table. And I think it just is worth taking a moment just to give you a visual image of what that looks like because they didn't eat at dinner parties the way that we eat at the, our dinner parties. The table that they're talking about was uh, a low oriental table, not a table where you sit at in chairs like we have. And so when you would come in to come to the table to eat, you would actually lie down on the floor and you would put your left elbow up on the table to support yourself and then you'd use your right hand as to eat while your body, the, your prone body, is laying away from the table. Your feet are pointed away from the table. And so everybody's feet are pointing outward from the table. That's what it would look like if you were to stumble into this dinner party at Simon Leper's house. John gives us a couple more interesting details. He says that Martha is serving in the kitchen, preparing the meal. Of course she is. If you know anything about Martha and Mary, that's very typical of her. She was the servant. She was the doer. And very typical of Mary, she's not in the kitchen serving and preparing the meal. And we don't know where she is at first. But there's no record of Martha complaining about it this time. And then into this scene walks Mary, not into the kitchen to help, but into the dinner party itself. And what John describes here in this incident gives us another picture that's very consistent with what we've seen in Mary in, in the earlier chapter. We've seen that Mary is a very deeply passionate, emotional woman, wears her heart on a sleeve, and that she loves the Lord Jesus Christ very deeply. John here, why does he include this? Of the great earth-shattering, cosmos-transforming events that are about to take place, why does he take the time to share this little odd event? I think it's because he wants to lay before us the example of Mary, of what's different about faith in Jesus Christ from faith in any other great historical leader. What is different about the faith that saves? And in Mary, what we see is a clear example of the faith that adores. A faith that is filled with adoration for the object of that faith. And that's what's different about faith in Christ. You know, what's interesting, there are several Marys that appear in the Gospels, and you always have to be kind of careful about which Mary you're talking about. 
This Mary is only mentioned three times, and we've talked about all three of them already. The first time she appears is in Luke chapter 10 when Martha is serving in the kitchen, and where is Mary? She's at the feet of Jesus. She's at the feet of Jesus, absorbing his teaching. Second time we meet Mary is what we referred to in chapter 11. It's Martha who typically runs out to meet Jesus first and and kind of mildly rebukes him for not getting there before Lazarus died, but Mary is so overcome with emotion that she doesn't even go out to meet Jesus, and then when Jesus calls her to come out and meet with him, where does she end up? At the feet of Jesus, weeping and pleading with him. Where do we see Mary here in John chapter 12? At the feet of Jesus again. Every time we meet Mary, she's on her face before the feet of Christ. I think that speaks to her character. It speaks to her heart. If we put the account of John together with the account that we find in Mark and Matthew, here's how the the, the small event plays out. They're having the dinner party. Jesus is at the place of honor. Lazarus is probably at his right hand. Everybody's enjoying the meal and the fellowship. And then Mary walks into the room. Now that in and of itself is a little bit inappropriate because at these kind of dinners only men were at the table. But Mary walks in and she's holding, according to one of the other gospels, she's holding an alabaster jar. Alabaster was a kind of delicate jar that you kept very important things in, particularly perfumes or perfumed oil, which is what she was carrying in that alabaster jar. She walks into the room. She breaks the jar so that the contents can be poured out. And then she takes the jar. And again, putting the, two account- the three accounts together, what's interesting is that the, the emphasis of the whole story is that she anoints the entire body of Christ, not just his feet. Because the other accounts emphasize the fact that she put the oil on his head which was a sign of honoring him and maybe even a sign of, 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 a, of a realization of him being the Messiah. But Jesus later says, she has anointed my body, which indicates that the oil was applied to more than just his head, and John emphasizes the fact that she applied it to his feet as well. And then, in some ways, the most amazing thing that she does is that she loosens her hair, her long hair, and she takes it and she gently, lovingly, uses her hair to wipe the excess oil off the feet of Christ. I'm sure that what Mary did made everybody in the room uncomfortable. I'm sure of it. It would make everybody in the room uncomfortable in our culture, let alone in first century Judean culture. But Jesus isn't made uncomfortable by it at all. Matter of fact, what's amazing is that Jesus is deeply pleased by what she did. He honors it as a profound expression of love and adoration and devotion to him. Well, what does this action teach us? As we dig a little more into the details, what does it teach us about what our faith in Christ should look like? How our faith is different than the faith of a Marxist or an Islamicist or whatever type of follower there might be in the world. What makes the faith of a true Christian different? It's all about adoration. Our faith includes that that, that 
aspect of adoration. And what we learn from Mary's faith is that that adoration of Christ, first of all, is a denial of self. It's a denial of self. What the gospel writers emphasize in these accounts is the cost of what Mary did. They emphasize it. First of all, in two ways. First of all, the cost to her earthly net worth. And we don't know what her net worth was. Matter of fact, there's some indications that Mary and Martha and Lazarus may have been wealthy. This is one of them. But it was a significant cost to her earthly net worth. John says that this perfumed oil was made out of pure nard. Who knows what nard is? Anybody know what nard is? We don't deal in nard much these days. But nard was an herb that grew in the mountains, the Himalayan mountains of northern India. That's where nard grew. So you can imagine how expensive it would be to get oil that was produced from nard in the mountains of the Himalayas transported by camel and who knows what else between there and the Middle East, made into oil to be used as perfume. And it was a very strong and very beautiful smell, aroma of nard. But it was extremely expensive. How expensive? Well, as the text goes on to say, one of the disciples estimates its worth at 300 denarii. Now, it's hard to remember what the economic units of the first century Judean economy were, but the denarius is one that you should always remember. The denarius was the easy one to remember how much it's worth. You know how much it's worth? One day's wages of the average worker. So 300 denarii, think about it. 300 days wages, working days. So subtract out of a year Sabbath days and feast days, and what you end up with is about 300 days. So it's one year's worth of wages of the average worker. That's a lot of money. In our economy, what? Thirty to $40,000 maybe? That's what that oil was worth, and she applied all of it to the body of Christ. But it's not just what it cost her net worth. It's also what it cost her earthly dignity. Because the way in which she did it was a total forgetfulness of herself. Caring for dirty Judean feet was the lowest of all low responsibilities in any given household. It's the ones that all the servants in the households fought over to see who wouldn't get that responsibility. The one who got to wash the feet of the masters and the family. The lowest of the low servants got got given the responsibility. The guy who got in trouble, probably, among the servants is the one who got the responsibility to go clean the feet. And in that culture, even more than that, think about this. Judean women, Jewish women, did not let their hair down. That was inappropriate in public. Letting your hair down and letting your hair flow as a woman was to put out in that culture, it kind of communicated you're kind of a loose woman. And so realize that Mary really humiliated herself in order to do this. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says that in that culture, a woman's long hair was her glory. Think about that. Mary used her glory as a towel to wipe off the feet of Jesus Christ. 
You see, the rest of the New Testament goes on to say that believing in Jesus Christ is not just a a mere assent to historical facts. Believing in Jesus Christ is dying to self. It's dying with Christ on the cross and being raised with him to new life. It's denial of the self. It's putting away of the self. And what is the self that the New Testament is talking about? It's this, this identity that you've worked all your life to build up in this world, this, this sense of your own glory. Whatever it is you've accomplished in your career, in your portfolio, in your possessions, in your friendships and and relationships in life, whatever it is you've accomplished, this glory that you've lived for before you came to Christ, when you come to Christ, that's what dies. And Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I do not live for my own glory anymore, but I live for the glory of Christ. My glory, it doesn't matter anymore. Who I am, what's my identity, what are my accomplishments? What matters is that Christ is glorified. That's what it means to die to self. And boy, do you see it clearly represented here in the actions of Mary. $40,000? Eh. A chance to worship Christ? That's awesome. It's worth it. Every drop of it, it's worth it. You see, to me, that's the key to worship. We wrestle with what worship is, and I'm sure most of you have probably been in the position of visiting churches and trying to find a church where you walk into the worship service and say, wow, this is a good church. I want to be a part of this church. What is good worship anyway? And so often it gets defined in all the superficial secondary stuff. You know, how good is the music or what's the pastor wearing? And, you know, how was I greeted on the way in or out? Were people friendly? And no, let me give you the key to real good worship. It's dying to self, forgetting yourself, losing your self-consciousness, and being caught up in the glory of Christ. You see, what a good church will do is put the glory of Christ on display from the pulpit. And the glory of Christ is seen by faith as the word of God is faithfully preached. The word of God, not the word of men. And when the word of God is faithfully preached, the word of God is about Jesus Christ from beginning to end, from first page to last. And so when the word is preached, Christ is displayed, Christ crucified is displayed, Christ risen from the dead is displayed. And what happens in the hearts of born-again spiritual people when the glory of Christ is put on display is that you get on your knees, you get on your face, and you worship. That's what worship is. And there's no place for self-consciousness in worship. Mary was so not self-conscious when she walked into that room. She didn't care what the men thought of her. She only cared about displaying the glory of Christ and basking in it. Self-consciousness is the enemy of worship. Can I get an amen? You know why I had to ask for that? Because you're Presbyterians. (laughs) Thankfully, we have a couple of us that overcome our Presbyterian inhibitions from time to time, and I deeply appreciate those of you that overcome that. But you know what's really... (laughs) Do you know what's really sad about that? 
is that I think the inhibitions are far less in ourselves, but it's the inhibitions that other people put upon us, and we allow them to do it. I mean, I, there is a, a truth, I think, that you tend to find the kind of church that your personality fits, and I was born to be a Presbyterian. I'm kind of reserved, kind of an introvert, you know, and so Presbyterian worship is comfortable to me. But come and hang out with me in the ninth inning of a one-run baseball game, a three-and-two pitch, and my favorite batter's up to bat, and he hits a home run out of the park, and watch how I react. Do I look like a Presbyterian then? Absolutely not. <laughs> you see, to me, that's what, that gets at what worship is. It's forgetting yourself and being so caught up in what you value that you forget yourself and you just want to bask in the glory of what you highly value. And worship is being caught up in the glory of Christ. And that's what Mary displays for us here. She forgot herself. You know, in the new heavens and the new earth, when sin is gone, and with sin, all of those fears and inhibitions that keep us from expressing ourselves in the way that we naturally would express ourselves, you're going to see a wonderfully diverse worship service. We're going to have Ron over here saying amen after everything that excites him and not feeling at all inhibited by the rest of us who, who don't feel that same freedom. But you're also going to have people that, that, that just aren't that expressive, and I'll be one of them. They just, in general, are not that expressive. But boy, when we feel it, we're going to express it because that's more consistent with who we are because it's not about us, it's about him. And we're so caught up in him that we forget ourselves. You see, when you look at it this way, you realize that dying to self is not really giving up anything in an eternal sense, is it? It's not sacrifice. It's giving up things like perfumed oil from the Himalayan mountains in India. It's like giving up things that have temporary and ultimately eternally meaningless value in exchange for things that have eternal value. And that's what dying to self is. It's dying to the world, but it's living to Christ. It's giving up the treasures of this life, whether it's earthly riches or earthly reputation, for the glories of the riches of the kingdom of Christ. What the others in the room that day didn't understand is that to Mary, the privilege of expressing her love and adoration for Jesus Christ was worth more than $40,000 to her. And I think any true believer understands that at some level. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Don't ever get that backwards. Don't go after the desires of your heart in this life and then expect to be able to delight in the Lord. It begins in delighting in the Lord. Everything begins in delighting in the Lord. And when you make the Lord your delight, then your heart becomes transformed. And you begin to receive from the Lord the eternal things that are far more of value than the things that you spend your time and money chasing after in this life. Missionary Jim Elliott, you've heard this many times, but I can't think of a more appropriate point in a sermon to put it. He once said, he's the one who died as a martyr for Christ as a missionary, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And that's the attitude of Mary. Secondly, adoration of Christ is the source of true service. Adoration of Christ is the, the, the death and denial of the self, but it is the source of true service. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
We know from the other gospel accounts that it wasn't just Judas who was saying the things that Judas actually says here. Judas is the one who speaks up. He maybe is the one who felt most strongly about this, but the other gospel accounts make it clear that there were other disciples saying the same thing. And I would hazard to guess, matter of fact, I'm fairly certain that if a bunch of us were sitting in that same room, we would have said the same thing that Judas says here in verses 4 and 5. Basically, he says, that oil was a year's wages. $40,000, what a waste. You could have taken care of a 1,000 poor people with that money. What a humanitarian. But John reveals his real motivation. Of course, John's writing decades later, and he knows. He didn't know at the time. None of the disciples knew at the time. But in hindsight, he knows what was really in the heart of Judas as he said this. Judas was the first church treasurer. And Judas was embezzling church funds. And so he saw what could have been to his great earthly, fleshly advantage if this money had been put in the church offering instead of being poured on the body of Christ. Gives us some more insight into Judas's dark heart. He followed Jesus. He believed in Jesus. He was following Jesus, but his hope was in earthly gain, earthly power, earthly reputation. He did not die to self. And as he became more and more disenchanted with Christ, as he became more and more disillusioned by the kingdom of God that Christ came to establish, it's easy to see, based on this incident, why 30 pieces of silver was enough to convince him to sell out his Lord. But listen to what Jesus said to Judas. Listen carefully. He says, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, don't misinterpret what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying... That's all, all that's important is that you worship all the time and it doesn't matter whether you take care of the poor or not. That's not what he's saying. Matter of fact, in many ways, he's saying exactly the opposite. What he's saying is, you know how important it is that the people of the kingdom of God take care of the poor? You know how high of a priority that is in the church? Worshiping Christ is far more important. He's using our responsibility to care for the poor to say how much more important it is that our first priority be that we glorify God in all that we do and all that we say. You know, just think about it, though. Isn't that an audacious claim? Doesn't that statement in and of itself prove that he was an eternal son of God? He was both fully God and fully man? Because any normal human being that would say what Jesus says right here would be a lunatic, deranged, arrogant to the most extreme. I mean, how could he let Mary do this if he wasn't the son of God? But he was, and he is. Mary's gift of expensive oil, this fragrant aroma, was an extraordinary gift for an extraordinary opportunity. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus all the time. She just loved to be at the feet of Jesus, just soaking in his teaching. You know what came of that? Is that somehow it indicates here that somehow at some level she understood that Jesus was about to go and die. At some level she understood it. I don't know how much she understood. Certainly she didn't understand all the intricacies and nuances of the substitutionary atonement. But she understood 
that Jesus was about to die and this was her great opportunity to show her love to him by anointing him with this oil. And she gained that insight that the disciples didn't have, by the way. The disciples didn't, or were still pretty clueless about this. But Mary got that insight because she sat at the feet of Christ and soaked in his word and worshipped him and loved him and adored him. We've been talking in our adult Sunday school class, one of our two classes, about the mission of the kingdom, the mission of the church. And we've been talking about how the social justice movement that's out there and very popular in the culture has had an impact in, in the church. And, and it's kind of caused some people to redefine what we're about and what we're doing. And actually, I've just been loving the conversations we've been having in our church because there's an awful lot of truth in the fact that we need to become much more concerned about the poor and the needy and those that are suffering and oppressed, both here and far away. But we need to understand, first and foremost, that all of those good works would be empty and meaningless, ultimately, if they are not driven by hearts that want to adore and magnify Christ, first and foremost. For many people, the social justice movement in the church is a necessary correction, and I agree with that. We need to talk about how we have failed to make an impact in caring for the poor around us. I agree with that. But I'm fearful that for many that are on board of that movement, it's become a new Phariseeism where we judge one another for not being spiritual enough because we're not doing enough to care for the poor. And if that's where you're at, then Jesus would say, your lips and your hands, you, you praise me with your lips and your hands, but your hearts are far from me. What's important is that your heart be loving the Lord, be consumed with adoring him, and then out of that, Go out and do the good works. Care for the poor, the needy, the enslaved, the oppressed. When it comes to serving physical needs and expressing adoration to the Lord, it's not either or, it's both and. You get the heart for loving your neighbor by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, your soul. That's where you get the true motivation that honors the Lord as you go out and try to change the world. The last point I just want to quickly make is that dying to self sounds hard, but we've, saw, we've seen that it's really exchanging what is of lesser and temporal value for what is eternal and glorious in value. And we also have seen that adoration is where we get the true motivation to go out and do true good works in changing the world. But it's not that it's entirely without honor either. When we give up the honor of this world... Jesus gives us a glimpse here that we get a greater honor in the kingdom because adoring Christ is the path to true honor. He, there's, there's an implication of the honor to Mary in what Jesus says in verses 7 and 8, but Matthew gives a much fuller quote. We get more context to the quote in Matthew. And let me read to you what Jesus said to Mary from Matthew 26. It says, She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done also will be told in memory of her. Wow. Now that is honor. 
Give me that honor any day over a Presidential Medal of Honor, over a Nobel Peace Prize, over a Most Valuable Player Award, or a World Series trophy, or a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Give me the honor that Mary got. Think about it. To have your adoration and devotion and commitment and faith in Christ memorialized everywhere the gospel is preached in every corner of the world for 2,000 years. That's the honor she got for that small act that she did in that supper that night. Reminds me of the epitaph that's on the grave of the great missionary William Carey. And there is no missionary who's had more of an impact on the world at large than William Carey. You know what it says on his grave? It says, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. See, William Carey understood that he is a nobody who loved a very, very great Savior. And that's what his legacy is. And that's his honor in the world. Are you a follower of Christ in the same way that a Marxist is a follower of Karl Marx? Are you a Buddhist or, a, you know, are you a Christian in the same sense that a, that a Buddhist is a follower of Buddha? What's different? In what way has Christ changed your life? It makes a big difference, doesn't it, that the object of your devotion is risen from the dead seated on the throne in heaven, reigning over the entire universe, and that he's promised to be with you always, even to the end of the age. That makes a huge difference. And when you believe that, and you adore that Lord and Savior, that is saving faith. Saving faith, here's the definition. I'll close with this. Saving faith is believing what the word of God has told us about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do, Adopting his worldview, his philosophy, his morals, his values as your own, as his disciple, and adoring him as the ultimate highest treasure in your life. That's saving faith. When I compare my faith to that, my faith is small and weak. But by God's grace, I see signs that it's real. And his promise is that he'll keep real faith growing until it consumes every inch of our lives, every part of our existence. And that's the hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you most of all that you have opened our eyes to see Jesus Christ displayed in all of his glory in your word. Father, I pray that for all of us, our weak faith would grow stronger. And we thank you that you've given us not only the gospel and the word of God and the Holy Spirit, but you have given us the sacraments. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we come to feed upon Christ by faith that our faith might be strengthened so that we can see the glory of Christ displayed more clearly in his word and in his work in the world. Thank you for your grace to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.